This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. So I called the chief out to the weather deck, just the two of us, and I said, Chief, what's going on? Uh, you're countermanding me at every turn with the crew. I just don't get it. Is there something I'm doing wrong? He wouldn't say much. I kept pressing him. I kept pressing him. Finally, he looks up from the railing, looks me dead in my eye and says, Ensign, it's just the way I was raised. There's just no way I can work for a black man. Wow. I was momentarily stunned because that was the last thing that I expected him to say. It was the first moment of leadership strength really in my career. I turned to the chief. I said, chief, if you really feel that way, I just prefer that you stay in the chief's mess and drink coffee and I'll run the shop. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. What makes a boy who can't swim decide to go to college at the United States Coast Guard Academy? For my guest today, the answer was to escape the riot-torn Washington, D.C. of the late 1960s and to get his shot at the American dream. Manson Brown managed to pass the swim test, figured out how to master the rigors of the academy, and became the first African-American cadet selected as brigade leader. He went on to an illustrious career with the Coast Guard, rising to the rank of Vice Admiral. Shortly after his retirement in 2014, he joined me at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as my deputy administrator. Manson's one of the finest leaders you could ever meet. I hope you'll be as inspired by his life story as I am and come away with some valuable insights about leadership development and managing career transitions. So I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be talking with Vice Admiral Manson Brown today. Manson and I got to know each other through four years of working together at NOAA, my most recent alma mater. Uh, he's a delightful gentleman with a fascinating career and life story, and I'm delighted that you were willing to make time to speak with us today, Manson. Plus, it's always just great to talk with you. Hello. Hello. There's so many things. You're, we worked so closely together for four years, but kind of never had much of a chance to just sit back and tell life stories and share insights we garnered along our, our various roads. Yours, Mine is a road not frequently traveled, as is yours. But if you're willing, I'd like to start back with 
the early and young Manson Brown, because you grew up in Washington, D.C., in the pre-civil rights era, segregated D.C. So I'm curious, what was what was it like growing up in Petworth, that district of the district? And uh, tell me a little bit about the young Manson Brown. Well, my childhood was actually quite good. Both of my uh, parents uh, were public servants. My father worked for D.C. government, which was managed by the federal government at that time. Uh, he started out as a parole officer, actually used to take me to work to Lorton Reformatory. And I think that was his way of scaring me straight. Wow. By, by interacting with the prisoners there. I remember some of the cameos there quite vividly. They taught me how to shoot pool. They taught me how to... Uh, play basketball, and they were very good when I was in their midst. I mean, I was a young kid at the time. Now, were these inmates contemporaries of yours or older? No, these inmates were much, much older. I'm probably at this point nine, ten years old wow. uh, when my father was a parole officer. He ended up retiring as the head of D.C. Department of Corrections. Wow. So he actually caught the affirmative action wave, went to Howard got a degree, actually did well. My my mother uh, worked for a three-letter agency. Ah, that means one of the secret agencies we will not talk about. At that time, uh, whenever people asked me, what does your mother do? We were programmed to say homemaker. But they provided a good home for my three sisters and I. Where are you amidst the girls? I am the third oldest. Okay. But I was the only boy under 40 in my family. Wow. My father had two brothers. They all had girls. It was interesting. My, my mother and my sisters loved shopping. To this day, I hate shopping. <laughs> <laughs> you had a little bit of an overdose of shopping maybe in your youth? Yes. Yes. <laughs> But in direct response to your question, I was an energetic child. I was a curious child. Into sports? No, I was not an athlete. Let's just say until I went to the Coast Guard Academy, I was physically underdeveloped. I was a bit of a runt, which actually was a good protection strategy growing up in DC, because if you were a big strapping kid, you had an attraction to the gangs and some of the other dangers in the city. They were pretty prevalent back then? They were particularly prevalent in the 60s. You know, you talk about the civil rights era. I remember the aftermath of Dr. King's March on Washington. My parents wouldn't allow our kids to go down, which was a point of great frustration for us. But I think the entire city was there. And back in those days, D.C. was about 88% African-American. But I just remember the sense of jubilation and hope that all of mm. the adults in my family came back to the neighborhood with. And wow. that lasted. It was actually quite a good neighborhood. You know, the other thing I remember is my neighborhood was sort of run by the elders, the grandmothers. If they caught you stepping out of line, they would punish you and then they would notify your parents and then you get punished a second time ah. when, when, <laughs> when you got home. In April of 1968, everything in my neighborhood changed. After the assassination of Dr. King, that sense of hope was replaced by 
a compelling sense of hopelessness and rage. And my neighborhood went from being a good neighborhood to a not so good neighborhood. The gangs traded in their lead pipes and their chains for guns. And then uh, there was an incredible rise in the drug scene uh, that even affected my neighborhood up in Petworth. You would have been about 12 at that time, right? That's exactly right. I remember standing on my roof looking south and all I saw was smoke and flames. And I remember the scent of tear gas permeating the neighborhood for weeks to follow. I talked about shopping. We could no longer go downtown to shop. Downtown shopping was great pre-1968. And huh. it, was, it was gone. African-American communities had to go to the suburbs for shopping after that. Was that because it was still so violent or the stores closed? Or? The stores were, um, were burned and shuttered and, and there was never an economic recovery wow. uh, in that area. My, my neighborhood was the northern point of the last store that was burned and looted. The wow. Safeway store around the corner from me. And my mother put me under lockdown. You know, I'm a young kid. Yeah. You want to be out there with your partners. You see them coming to the door saying, hey, man, come on. And uh, she said, no, she put she put me on lockdown, which probably was a good thing for me because a lot of kids ended up uh, in jail as a result of those activities. Do you remember, how else did that feel to you? I mean, such a vivid description of the smoke and the tear gas. But yeah, I remember those the turmoil that time in a much different and more distant way. But I still remember having a, a deep sort of feeling of dread about what is happening to this country. I mean, almost a feeling of this whole thing could come apart, this country that I think I'm growing up in. Well, that was the feeling. It was, um, it was very unsettling, as I recall, to me as a young child. Yeah. I, my thought was my world is coming to an end. Yeah. Uh, and, and in many ways it did. Uh, my my you know, my innocence was shattered. The reality of life uh, confronted me. You know, somehow we got back onto a school calendar. My father ended up sending me to a majority white high school up in Northwest hmm. DC. What was that like? <laughs> Let's just say it was interesting. It was, uh, <laughs> there were only, I recall about 22, 25 African-Americans in the student body of a thousand. Wow. On the one hand, it was good training for the rest of my life and my career. On the other hand, I saw what the other side looked like, and it planted a new dream in my mind. Ah. You know, some of the rage that I remember having converted to passion to try to get my piece of the American dream. I thank my high school for that, because huh. I, I actually played in pit bands for some of the actors and some of the shows at the high school. What was your instrument? I played saxophone. I played a number of instruments. Yeah. Bass clarinet. You never showed us that musical side at NOAA. Manson, we should have had you on stage. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Once you have kids, you put, you put away those playful things. Yeah. My interest in music continues, but I must admit I've lost my touch with yeah. regards to creating music. Some of the guys in the shows would invite us to the after parties. And when I saw how they lived 
in the suburbs of DC. I said, wow, how do I get some of this? And uh, one of the things I decided was I needed to leave DC to have a shot at the American dream because too many of my friends and even me, we just found ourselves caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, despite being generally good kids. And that's what led me to the Coast Guard. I get the logic there, but that still seems a, a pretty amazing leap for a young boy growing up where you did, as you say, sort of a bit of a runt and underdeveloped. And I mean, there are other military academies. A kid that couldn't swim might have thought, might have picked the Army or, or West Point or, or the Air Force Academy did exist then. But there's got to be a little more to that go to the Coast Guard Academy story. Fill, fill in a bit more of those blanks. My college quest started when I went to the high school counselor's office and there was a rack with all of the college brochures. And I just went through and picked out the interest cards and mailed them all in. I got dozens of applications sent to me. One of them had to be an application to the Coast Guard Academy. I actually put that application aside because my neighborhood in general did not have a good experience with the Vietnam War. Uh, many of the kids in my neighborhood came back in boxes. And so I knew that my mother was not interested in her only son joining a military service. What changed her mind? She could have locked you down again, knowing your mother. <laughs> you know, I started getting acceptances to some tier one schools. All of them offered partial scholarships. I had a full scholarship to one college in upper New York. Sometime during that process, a Coast Guard lieutenant showed up at my door. Ah. And, of, and of all of the colleges that was interest, were interested in me, Coast Guard was the only one to send somebody to my home. And so that was a stunning revelation, both for me and my mom. Uh, because of that, my mother let him in the door. This gentleman happened to be African-American, tall, good-looking. I think my mother went was a bit struck by him. <laughs> I was struck because he gave me a vision for something that I had never considered. And when I saw him, I said, hmm. Uh, so he started with a conversation with my mother. She said, no, 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 no. But he convinced her to allow the Coast Guard to take me up to the academy. So within a week or two, I found myself in Chase Hall with the other cadets. I was sold. This was the right environment. It provided the structure, the growth opportunities, the academic rigor, everything I was looking for. And it wasn't in DC. The other piece of this was I had two sisters in college. My dad was working three jobs to wow. pay the bills. You know, we never had visibility of the economic struggle, but it was pretty evident to me. And I figured out I was gonna do whatever I could do to help out the family situation. And so for me, that became the primary driver, uh, along with leaving DC. Uh, I ended up completing the application with Lieutenant Steverson's help. By the way, London Steverson was the second African-American to graduate from the Coast Guard Academy. Wow. I got an appointment and my mama, because I was 17 years old, Lonnie eventually talked her into signing the papers to let me go. And he promised her the Coast Guard would take good care of her son. Do you remember what the welcome was like when you went up on that first visit? You would have been one of the only African-American on the campus or one of very few in the Corps of Cadets at that time, I imagine. How did it feel? 
the Academy was very good about putting out the welcome mat for people of color. Um, my class ended up having the largest number of African-Americans in history. Uh, there were 22 of us. And, and I must admit, particularly after my high school experience, it was much more welcoming and nurturing. And even when I reported to the Academy in June, same thing, they had prepared the battlefield well. And people were on their best behavior. Uh, and so I didn't have the racial struggles at the academy uh, that I experienced, particularly in my high school, because it's a military service. The leaders say it's going to be this way, and most people complied. Did you end up with any friends out of your high school experience, or was it just you got through and occasionally were invited to parties, but other than that, your worlds remained quite separate? I had two friends. One was another African-American, also from DC. Uh, he was my running buddy. Uh, he actually died of cancer in college. That was Ooh. Uh, very tumultuous for me. And then my other best friend, we managed baseball together. I wasn't an athlete, but I could help you know, stack the bats and clean the gear and do those kinds of things. And Chris Coburn and I, we just had a connection that continues today, but I don't really have any close friends from high school like I do from the academy. Yeah. So you get up the academy. I imagine cadets have to swim. So you probably had to figure out the swimming part. Yeah, you know, <laughs> interesting. Spend a life at sea. They probably want to know that you can swim. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it's, it was one of those anxieties that Lieutenant Stevenson talked about, but it's not one that I worried much about because I figured they'd handle it. And as luck would have it, all of the non-swimmers in my class of 400 would put under the charge of uh, one of the assistant coaches. It happened to be uh, Coach Hallie Gregory, the first African-American to be an assistant coach at any military academy. And so Coach Gregory knew his business. I mean, he, he coached basketball, he coached a little bit of football, but he also knew swimming. What he trained me on was the reason I couldn't swim was because I was a scrawny kid, 135 pounds, you know, body fat well below 10%. And so I was negatively buoyant to the bottom of the pool, which at the academy <laughs> was, was 12 feet under. So what he coached me on was, young man, you just have to work a little bit harder. So we had three weeks to pass the swimming qualification before we got kicked out. And he took me through sort of a crawl, walk, run. So by the last day, I was able to successfully complete the course of instruction. Of course, I learned to love the water. You know, I've gone diving recreationally to 140 feet off the coast of Tahiti and done other magnificent things in the water. And I thank Coach Gregory, not only for his coaching, but his nurturing and his leadership. Yeah. Any particularly notable memories from your time at the Academy? I'm kind of interested to hear what really stood out to you about the training, the life development uh, of your years at the academy? Well, the first thing, they, they shock you. They strip you of all of your civilian vestiges, you know, shave your head, all of those kinds of things. 
what really stands out to me, particularly the swap summer, they call it the first few weeks where they decide whether or not you're ready to do this is they hit you with all of the military stuff. They hit you with a lot of academic stuff and they hit you with a lot of physical stuff. The physical stuff was grueling, you know, program runs for two to five miles, push-ups, pull-ups, which I couldn't do one when I started out the program. And so I made it through swap summer. It was good enough. But when we, when we started the academic semester, because of those three sort of vectors, I struggled with academics. Quite frankly, I was a straight A student in high school. I didn't have to study that much. I just sort of got it. Not so at the academy. And what I figured out, it was because of the, the military stuff and because of the physical stuff. It, it really disrupted my rhythm with the academic stuff. And so I had a D plus average my first semester. Ooh. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is my second challenge after swimming. I've got to get on top of this. And so I became a much better time manager. And for the few moments that we had off, I focused on the studies where my classmates headed to the beach to have some fun. Ah. And I, I did that for the remainder of my four years, ended up on Dean's List, ended up in the top third of my class. At some point, they said, young man, you're doing well enough that we're going to make you the leader of the cadet brigade. And so in 1977, I was the first selected as the first African-American to command the brigade. Wow, that is really something from D minus to brigade commander. Yeah, it was. I, I will tell you, there were those within the Corps. You know, you always get this, and, and you know this from your experience. You know, there's that tell you you don't belong here, or they tell you you only got this recognition because you're black. By then, I, I, I had learned to ignore those folks. Interesting. So you head on out to sea, and I know you had a because you told me this story once upon a time, a couple of people on your first sea tour that also gave you another squaring away and set you on a track. I think there was a, a petty officer, make the context here clear, you go aboard ship as a freshly minted Coast Guard ensign. Every petty officer and chief on the ship is junior to you in rank, but a lot of them are senior to you in age, and a lot of them have more sea time than you. And that dynamic of being the young, wet-behind-the-ears officer who nonetheless is in charge of things is, is an interesting one to navigate. And you maybe talk about that a little bit in your first encounters with folks at sea, because you know, anyone who ever gets promoted from peer in a group to suddenly the supervisor has to navigate a, a, similar, a similar change. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, there was a bit of a difference between what I experienced at the academy and what I experienced when I got to the fleet. Part of the dynamic was, for the most part, everybody at the academy wanted to be there. When I got to the fleet, a lot of the folks were holdovers from the draft. Uh. And they were sort of stuck in service and sort of doing the least minimum that they needed to do to, you know, wait out their 20 minutes. years. That's yeah. exactly right. So there was a bit of a bell curve of commitment. And I had to deal with that as a leader. Uh, the other piece of it was uh, 
you know, this is 1978. Uh, racial tensions are still flaring. There are very few African-Americans aboard ship. I get on board the ship as an ensign. I'm sort of the senior black officer, if you will. So I start becoming the voice of African-Americans aboard ship. And, you know, there's an obligation that comes with that, but you can only take that so far. Because at the end of the day, you're running a military service, doing Coast Guard missions, trying to take care of your people to the best of your ability, and you can't pick favorites. So I had to, had to navigate through that. The third dimension of it, and this one was the one that surprised me, is you know after a few weeks of learning the ship, standing a few watches, uh, the engineering officer turns to me and says, okay, we're gonna put you in charge of a division. I was responsible for nine damage controlmen in the DC shop. My number two was a chief petty officer, a man with over 20 years of experience, vast experience. And so my job was to work collaboratively with him to lead the rest of the crew and to learn from him. After a few weeks of trying to do those things, it was clear to me that he was not with the program. So I called the chief out to the weather deck, just the two of us, and I said, chief, what's going on? Uh, you're countermanding me at every turn with the crew. I just don't get it. Is there something I'm doing wrong? He wouldn't say much. I kept pressing him, I kept pressing him. Finally, he looks up from the railing, looks me dead in my eye and says, Anson, it's just the way I was raised. There's just no way I can work for a black man. Wow. I was momentarily stunned because that was the last thing that I expected him to say. You know, my spidey sense did not even, you know. Didn't detect it. It gave me no clue that that yeah. was his, his rationale. So what did you do? Well, my reaction equally surprised me. It was the first moment of leadership strength really in my career. I turned to the chief, I said, chief, if you really feel that way, I just prefer that you stay in the chief's mess and drink coffee and I'll run the shop. Wow. And he left and I went down to the stateroom. I put my head in my hands. He was the mo one of the most popular chiefs on the boat. A, a big man, a, a, a giant personality. I figured because of the dynamics at the time that the command and the crew would back him and the ensign would get shipped off the boat. A few moments later, there's a knock on the door. I open the door, it's the chief of the boat, Master Chief So not the chief Davis. you just talked to, the senior among all of the chiefs aboard ship. He's the chief of the chiefs and he's the command advisor to the commanding officer. Right. Someone who I probably haven't, hadn't had 20 words with, but someone who just commanded respect because of his presence. Uh, that was Pete Davis. And, you know, chiefs never came to officer country. It just right. never happened. Yeah. And so I figured he was there to lower the boom on me. He looked at me. He said, Ensign, I heard what you did. You did the right thing. I'll be your chief now. And I almost wow. broke down in tears because that, that, that was another stunning 
reaction. And so Pete Davis provided a shroud of protection for me for the rest of that tour. I learned so much from him. In my mind, my negative interaction with the chief was completely replaced by the good reaction of Chief Davis. We became friends for years. When he retired, he, he ran a restaurant in Charleston. When I was in command in Charleston, I'd take my officers to dine at his restaurant. Yeah, very cool. But, you know, that's how we dealt with it. And the thing I learned was, don't try to take these things on alone. There are a lot of people that'll have your back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, believing that you've got resources and support around you makes all the difference in the world. So let's fast forward a little bit. I mean, you have a 36-year career with the Coast Guard. Your Half of your Wikipedia page, at least, is just photos and listings of all your awards and decorations. You retire in a grand retirement ceremony. And I think it was the very next Sunday, I invite you out to brunch and start the arm twisting that eventually brings you to Noah. But the piece of all that that I'm curious about loops back to your childhood story. As a 17-year-old, you had to leave D.C. to find the American dream. But as a senior Coast Guard officer, you find yourself back in D.C. again. What did those bookends feel like? Did you come back thinking, I am one now, I own this place now? Or any reflections back to the 17-year-old as you drove back into D.C. that first time? I ended up spending a third of my career in DC. Uh, anybody knows in order to achieve ultimate success in the military, you have to do time in headquarters. And so through that leadership progression, I ended up here several times. At one point, we had three young kids. I, I told my father I wanted to move back in the old house in DC and, and try to save a few kids. And he looked at me and he said, no way. There's no way in heck my grandkids are going to live in that neighborhood. Wow. And I said, okay, Pop. And we moved on, which is why we live in Northern Virginia. But one of the reasons we gravitated back to D.C. and why I'm retired here is because, because of those 13 years of my career in D.C., our sons all completed high school here. So this is their family home in Northern Virginia. This is where their friends network is. This is where they have all settled successfully. And so despite our best laid plans to retire to Florida, Herminia told me, no, we're coming, <laughs> we're, we're, we're staying in this area. And that's how you were able to, to snag me. Ah, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but you talk about reflections. Yeah. I mean, that was a big spur sending you out from D.C. It had to be interesting to come back in, in such different, in different form, in different standing. I still am consumed by the people from my childhood experience and even some of the African-Americans from my high school who ended up getting caught up in the drug scene or ending up in jail or, or dying because of the violence. There's just an unfairness to that. Uh, they're trapped in that situation. I was fortunate because of my parents' insistence on academic excellence. I had a ticket out of this, the city. Many of my contemporaries didn't have that ticket. 
And so my last job in the Coast Guard was the Deputy Commandant for Mission Support. I was double-handed as the commanding officer of Coast Guard headquarters. One of the most important things I did was to move Coast Guard headquarters from Trans Point to Anacostia. So for people who don't know D.C., that's from being right in the heart of the district to across the Anacostia River in Maryland, a little bit, a slightly more suburban setting. It's one of the most underserved portions of the city. And there was a lot of fear in my 4,000-person workforce about that move. You can understand how media stokes those for your son and so forth. And so we need to work through that fear through education. And one of the ways that we did that was outreach to the city, Uh, you know, putting mentoring partnerships in place with the schools, meeting with the city leaders, doing walks, military walks through the town, frequenting the restaurants in Ward 8. Uh, And so I'm inspired to continue that work to try to save as many of those kids as we can. So I did manage to snag you, and uh, pretty swiftly, actually, you came aboard. We had to get you nominated and confirmed as an assistant secretary. But with 36 years under your belt in a military organization, tell me what struck you, what kind of cultural and other differences were most interesting and most challenging for you coming to NOAA? You know, one of your contemporaries and our mutual friend, Charlie Bolden, became a three-star general in the Marine Corps before becoming the administrator of NASA. And Charlie often jokes that the biggest change he had to deal with was with three stars on your shoulder in the military, when you pronounce a decision, you know, there's a snappy salute and an aye, aye, sir, and it's done. And as NASA administrator, when he pronounced the decision, it turns out that was just the start of the conversation. (laughs) Things didn't stick. So, I mean, you had no prior experience I ask you to take on satellites and weather service and, yes, some ships, which would have been the familiar hook point, but everything else would have been new and different to you. How did you orient yourself in all of that newness and and come up to speed and decide what mode of engagement to have across that broad portfolio? Well, I remember you and I talked about the translation and the fact that you weren't looking for a military leader. You were looking for a good leader with superior management skills to move programs forward. I wasn't as concerned about the loss of status, quite frankly, because through my development in the Coast Guard, I embraced the style of the servant leader. And for most of my, the second half of my career, I used that style and it worked magnificently, much better than the autocratic style. What surprised me most, I I must admit, I had some anxiety joining an organization of 12,000 scientists, engineers, and technologists, because you people are really smart. (laughs) But the, the, the thing that surprised me the most in translating from a military to a civilian agency was how many demands were placed on me because of my leadership skills both on an individual to individual level and an organizational level. And so despite our, you know, work to move the satellite program forward, rebuild the NOAA uh, fleet, you know, figure out the, the data translation to useful 
information for the public. Most of what I did was to teach leadership and mentor people with regards to leadership. And I, I love that pull on my time. It's the thing that I think pe most people responded to. And so I, I embraced the role of teaching people about leadership. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. What are the core lessons you try to impart to them? I talk about servant leadership. You and I have had this conversation. One of the things I found with Noah is we focused on the mission. The Coast Guard, to a lesser extent, tends to do that. You know, we're mission first people always, but after we've consumed all the resources to support the mission, there's precious little left for the people. And so people come across as a bit of an afterthought. Within the Coast Guard? There are times in the Coast Guard when that is true. Yeah. Certainly that's what I found when I, I joined the NOAA team. So we, we need to do restore focus on people programs. And as you know, you and I focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion to sort of give voice to the voiceless. We did that under the rubric of enhancing overall employee morale. So those are, those are some of the things that I tried to teach when I, when I got to know, and I appreciated the opportunity. Well, you've, you told our diversity story very generously because what actually happened, as I recall, is I think you'd been aboard a month or maybe six weeks, and you came into my office and rattled off, I've found this and I've that policy. I, you know, I think I've got the landscape now of all the key policy documents and governing authorities and so forth, except, except the one, I, I haven't found your diversity policy yet. I don't remember what I was working on at the time, but you stopped me in my tracks with that statement, and I had to confess to you that it wasn't that you hadn't found it, it was that I had failed to create one and put one out yet, and asked you if you would take the lead and pull the right kind of team together to do that. And what I loved about the way you did that was you mainly pulled our younger folks together. So, you know, Noah's got folks in their typically 50s and 60s running the major units of the agency, and then a couple of squads of people in their typically 30s who are liaising between headquarters and those groups. We call them PCO, and it was, I thought, just brilliant to bring the younger folks who are going to they're going to live in what we build together on that diversity journey and live it longer than any of us old fogies that are sitting in the, the fancier, higher-ranking seats. Uh, and they were, of course, brilliant at doing it. On that servant leadership point, Manson, you are one of the best embodiments I've ever come across of servant leadership. I mean, the chest of your Coast Guard uniform has got you know, a six-inch stack of ribbons and medals on it and all sorts of accolades. And, if I bumped into you at the mall or on a street corner, you'd never know that. You would just know you had met a really interested in you, sincere, and intriguing human being. So it's a, you wear your rank and your authority superbly well. Manson today, being retired, are you still, where does your interest in bicycling come from? Is that like too many hours on a bicycle ergometer or board ship trying to stay fit? I've been biking since probably the age of eight. Ah, you know, I talked about my parents working 
during the summers, my sisters and I were essentially latchkey kids. And so uh, when I got my bike, that was my ticket to the city. One thing about me, I pushed the envelope on everything. I'd bike four and a half miles down through Rock Creek Park to the National Mall and just visit all of the memorials. I had an uncle who was a barber at the US Capitol working on the Senate side. During those trips, I'd always just lean my bike up, up against the marble steps and go in and sit in his barbershop for a couple of hours. Wow. Sometimes getting a haircut along the way. And because of the freedom that that gave me, and, and the, all of these trips were alone. I was pretty much, because of the only male under 40 in my family, I pretty much was a loner as a child. I developed confidence with biking and using the bike as, a, as an avenue of freedom. And so I have bike commuted for most jobs in my Coast Guard career, one year doing as many as 8,000 miles on my bike. And when I retired, my first bucket list item was to bicycle across America, which was a task that required a lot of training because of some health issues but I completed it successfully in 2018. And did you do it all in one go or did you have some you know, bike for a while and then need to take a break or? No plan su survives first contact. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, as a senior officer in DC, I'd become accustomed to biking from DC to Annapolis with the Wounded Warrior Group. They were the ones that planted the seed in my mind to do this trip. They were planning to do it and I simply was going to join them. So I started training, got all the equipment. They ended up pulling out. So I decided because of my own self-confidence in biking that I'd go solo. Wow. And so, you know, I trained for 2000 miles. I flew the bike out to uh, Oregon, put it together and started heading east. Made it through the halfway point in Kansas. Had a single bike accident, my own fault. Ended up breaking my clavicle. Oh. Came back to DC. I had it surgically repaired. A few months later, went back to the halfway point and continued east. It was one of the most phenomenal experiences in my life. I learned a lot about this beautiful country. More importantly, I learned a lot about our beautiful citizens. Many of them, when they saw me coming across their neighborhood, would give me the shirt off their back to support me. Did you camp along the way or stay in motels? I, I camped six days a week. Um, I stayed in a hotel one day a week, primarily to clean the bike, clean myself, and fill up my blog. And I needed a day of recovery, again, because of some health challenges. The thing I'd really like to follow up a little bit on comes back to Noah, because you had spent a life, a career at sea at that point, but now you come to an agency that's basically completely devoted to understanding this planet we live on and, and converting knowledge and data, scientific understanding into information that's useful to normal human beings, you know, from a weather forecast to you know, whatever. And I'm interested... In the technical and, and programmatic, the mission side of NOAA, what were the big, you know, who knew moments when you discovered something NOAA does or the way, you know, like how a space weather forecast is made, you know, that 
did you have any of those big, wow, is that how we do it moments that stand out? Yeah, I did. You know, one of the first things was, was just the scope and scale and diversity of the observing system. You know, as you say, from the sea to the sun. Wrapping my brain around that and finding out about the form and function of each of the components of that was intriguing to me. I think most Americans don't have a clue. And, you know, this is where we developed the theme that, you know, NOAA's satellites are part of critical national infrastructure. Because I think if the people on the Hill and if most Americans knew just how vital those observing systems were, they would, they would write the checks necessary to sustain them. The second thing was just the volume of data uh, that the agency crunches to create useful forecasts, whether they're general weather alerts for the public or tailored forecasts for industry or the military. I was astounded at the the volume of that, the, the computing power of that, the desire for increased computing power of that. Also related to the algorithms that took all of that raw data, crunched the numbers to produce useful output. You know, I'm a civil engineer. To me, the IT aspects of that were, were particularly intriguing. The third part of it was just the overall scope and scale of the agency. You know, you could talk about National Weather Service, National Ocean Service, Fish Service, the Research Service, the Satellite and Data Service. Most people, when they think about NOAA, they think all of this is consolidated into a single whole, but there are nuances to that that are important. And I enjoyed learning about those unique aspects of the agency. Yeah, it really is an outfit where all the pieces have to mesh together remarkably well to make even your everyday weather forecast come out. And yeah, data volume, what was it, 20 terabytes a day NOAA produces, either measures or produces in computer output, which is like five, five libraries of Alexandria per day uh, is just amazing stuff. If you could wave a magic wand and ensure that all Americans understood or the average person understood one thing about this planet that we live on, what would that be based on your NOAA experience? You know, we're really just uh, one part of the overall Earth ecosystem. And we have to understand our interconnections with the rest of the ecosystem. Uh, where the planet goes, we go. I know during our time, we were in communication with city managers along the coast. They can tell you about the impacts of uh, climate change on their infrastructure, on their housing, on their development plans. Even today, we seem to be blind to that. But this challenge is going to reshape our lives, whether we like it or not. I just hope most Americans wake up and get our elected leaders focused on that in time to make a difference. So I, you're happy, I would take it, that the United States has re-entered the Paris Accords? Are, are those agreements going to be enough? Do we need to step up and do more? 
It's not enough, but it's a good start. It starts an international conversation. It, it creates a priority, both on the global scale and, and the national scale. Sustainment of that is going to be important. And we all have to look at this from our own individual space, whether it's how we manage our household trash, what type of uh, vehicles we drive, or what type of vacations we take, or what nonprofit organizations we support. We all have to do our own little piece, and we also need to band together as a nation to do our national piece. Optimistic about that prospect? Where are you on the scale, optimist or pessimist, with respect to the climate challenge? Well, history teaches us that America loves a great crisis. And if you take a look at whether it's the Civil War, the World Wars, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, we always band together to mount a challenge against the crisis. Quite frankly, I think the signs are there. Uh, for us to consider doing it now. Uh, I'd rather we do it sooner than later, but it's just a matter of time before that turning point hits. And again, I just hope by that time it's, it's not too late. It may be too late. So, you know, I'm also encouraged by our renewed venture into space, whether it's putting a base on the moon, our exploration to Mars. I don't think we want to be known as a consumer species, but that may be the only, only option that time makes available to us. So there is a planet B, in your view, either the moon or Mars. Yeah, I just hope we develop it soon enough. Yeah. So um, you are, by your own words, retired and engaged in the joy of not working what fills, what gives you that joy? What is your joy these days? You're not a sit-around guy who's just going to sit in an armchair. I'm not a sit-around <laughs> guy. I really loved working. I loved working and pursuing my passions with both the Coast Guard and NOAA. If I could, I'd still be working a full-time job because I just loved it. But truth be told, full-time employment takes its toll. And that toll becomes greater as you become older. And I mentioned health challenges. I've become more public with these as, as I've gotten older. I've been dealing with uh, a rare form of cancer for the better part of 20 years. And it's one of those things that uh, is treatable, but it has its impacts. And so one of the decisions that I made was I have to be fully retired in order to manage my health. And the way that I manage my health is by over-accentuating fitness. Hence, spending a lot of time on a bicycle, uh, spending a lot of time in the weight room, spending a lot of time on stretching. It counteracts the symptoms of the disease and more importantly, the uh, side effects of the drugs that I'm on. Uh, so I'm primarily focused on health. I would encourage every American to do the same. The more you do that sooner in your experience, the better off you will be. As part of that, uh, I've signed up in a clinical trial at the National Institutes of Health to advance the research for my condition uh, with hopes that 
we as a nation can soon find a cure for cancer, which was the thing that killed both my parents. So that's, that's the personal side. On the professional side, I continue to be engaged with mentees from the Coast Guard and NOAA. I continue to recruit for my Coast Guard Academy. I find myself as the chair of the board for the Coast Guard Academy Alumni Association right now, which sort of sometimes feels like a full-time job. Yeah. I'm working with an organization called Community Renewal that's focused on rebuilding some of those neighborhoods in DC that we talked about. And those are the main things that I'm involved in. And some extra time for Herminia, I trust. Of course. And I should also mention, you know, as a, as a former Coastie, as a political appointee, former political appointee in NOAA, I've always been snagged by the National Academies of Sciences for a few committees. And I'm intrigued by that work uh, that allows me to keep my head in the game, if you will. Very good. Well, Manson, it is always a delight talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing deeper insights and new perspectives that I didn't appreciate on the journey that you've made from, I mean, just really amazing from inner city DC kid to the Coast Guard Academy, a life at sea, and then command tour again uh, with me at NOAA. Thank you very much for agreeing to that brunch on that sunny Sunday. Thank you for joining us on Kathy Sullivan Explores. Thank you, Kathy, for your friendship, your leadership, and your continued mentorship. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.